I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the, to the first psalm, to the book of Psalms and the first one, Psalm 1. Before we read it together, I want to let you know a few things. I am, for the next few Sundays, going to be pressing pause, as it were, on the book of Ezekiel. The sermon series that we have been going through in the book of Ezekiel, I was kind of inspired to do after reading O. Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Prophets, uh, particularly the sections on Ezekiel. Uh, I was convinced that Ezekiel presents us with a God that we would rather forget. I didn't say a part of God. I don't actually think it's helpful to speak of God as having parts or moods or sides. God is always all of God, and all of God is always God. But Ezekiel presents us with a God that we would rather forget. A God who is angry when His people treat themselves and each other like sacks of meat that only exist for worthless and destructive pursuits. In Ezekiel, we find a God who judges sin and who starts with His own house and with His own children. In the prophets, we do, by the way, find God judging other nations. We do find prophets preaching against the sins of particular Gentile nations. But the majority of prophetic literature addresses the sins and failures and judgment of God's own people. Ezekiel is preaching against Their worship of images, pictures, statues. Also, in Ezekiel 8, I believe it was, he preaches against their their worship of, of, of pictures and statues and emotions and nature. In our present moment, I found that to be rather applicable. It's another reason why I pursued preaching Ezekiel. The reason why I want to preach the Psalms for a moment, why I'm going to take a break from Ezekiel, as it were, just for the next few Sundays over the rest of this summer, and preach on a few of the Psalms, is that God knows how we are wired. God knows how you're wired. He made you, and He knows how you're wired. We've talked about that in the uh, children's catechism class on Wednesday night. That God is the one who made you, that He knows how you're built, how He's made you, how He's made everybody else. And so, in His mercy, He has done some really cool things, like told us how it is we are to come before Him in worship. Eddie preached on that, um, I believe it was last week or the week before. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, it all runs together. But Eddie just recently preached on that, on how God has directed us to worship. He gives us sacraments, uh, water and wine and bread, so that we can see Him and receive Him. He gives us His Word, so that we always have a clear foundation and standard and glory to return to. Within that Word, God has placed 150 songs right in the middle of the book so you couldn't miss them. And these songs are not only about God, I mean, they are that, but they also, it's, it's, they give us a much bigger comprehensive study of God. Martin Luther called the Psalter, which is just a nice word that means it's like, think of hymnal Psalter. That's, I mean, so the Psalter is all of the Psalms that are for singing, which is all of them. And so sometimes you'll hear the book of Psalms referred to as the Psalter. Luther called the Psalter a mini Bible. A, a, a tiny Bible. What he meant is that it's all there, all the all the main stuff and content in your Bible. So creation, fall, law, tabernacle, temple, exile, Messiah, restoration, death, life, creation, sin, grace, salvation, joy and sadness, fear and courage, despair, uncertainty, 
prosperity, poverty, faith, unbelief. Everything's there. It covers everything. Why would God do that? Why would God place a bunch of songs, song poetry, if you like, right in the middle of the Bible? Because He knows how we're wired. If I started singing the first line of the top 20 hymns of all time, or the first line of the top 20 billboard charts of the last, say, decade, most of you could probably sing the next few words or maybe the rest of the song. God knows how we are wired. And in His mercy, He has given us songs to sing. Those songs are a basic functional overview of all that He's done, of all that He is. So God in His mercy has given us a songbook that functions like a mini-Bible. It covers all the major aspects of life and theology and godliness so that we might be a people who have these songs ringing in our ears, as it were. And so with that, I'm going to start off by reading the sermon text for you this morning. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh, the Lord, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And again, we say, thanks be to God. And so, actually, I've got a text that I want you to turn to that I forgot to put in the presentation. But if you've got your Bibles open or Bibles turned on, as it were, go to Romans chapter 3. And I want to direct your attention to something that's really interesting before we kind of get started on the content of this psalm. So as you might know, in chapter 3 of Romans, Paul is diagnosing the sin problem of all mankind. Just before he concludes Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I would direct your attention to verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. God has already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, which was an ancient way of saying the whole world, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul diagnoses all of humanity in some pretty ugly terms. So I ask you, in some very kind of visceral, physical pictures, right? Their throat is an open grave, right? The venom of snakes under their lips. Their feet, what do they use their feet for? Running, yes, to go kill, to go murder, to shed blood. The way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. All this imagery, bodily imagery happening. This is all they can use their eyes for, their feet for, their hands for, and so on. 
from where does Paul get all these images? From where does he get a flood? I mean, it's just an absolute downpour of different pictures. He just starts in verse 11, and you notice probably in your Bibles it then has a kind of poetic setup. You see it, it works just like the Psalms in kind of poetic verse. That's, be, that's because almost every line there between verses 11 through 18 is a quotation from the Psalms. There's one bit in there that's from the Proverbs. Everything else is from the Psalter. Now, how did Paul do that? Did he have a copy of the Psalter with him when he wrote Romans? Probably not. He was likely quoting the music he already knew. He was quoting the songs he already knew. It would be like, if you'll pardon me a cheesy example, if I was to write a love song to Marissa, and I wrote, Wise men say only fools rush in but I can't help falling in love with you. When a man loves a woman, he can't keep his mind on nothing else. Something in the way you move makes me all shook up. What I've just done there is strung together a little romantic ditty borrowing from Elvis and the Beatles and Percy Sledge, and maybe I'll throw in some Ed Sheeran there if you give me some more time. Most of you probably recognized at least one of those lines, by the way. Okay? Paul in Romans 3 is attempting to explain the utter depravity of mankind and wants to start expressing it apparently poetically, which is where we go when we want to express things with heavy emotion. So he starts grabbing lyrics from the songs he's been singing since he was a boy. That's what I just did with the love song thing. Can you imagine having that kind of utility with the Psalms? That when you need to express joy, rather than some vapid existentialist tune you heard on the radio, you start singing God's songs. When you need to cry out, rather than muttering some bit of depressing emo rock from the 90s, you can sing God's songs. And can you imagine singing music with words that you never have to correct or modify or wonder if they're right or helpful for the situation? This is why Eddie and I have have always tried to make it a, a priority to make psalm singing part of our worship. I can't promise it's happened with absolute perfection, but if, if you were to, to keep your bulletins from Sunday and go back through them, you'll notice there's usually at least one selection somewhere along the way that is a paraphrase of a psalm, or, uh, or you know, a, a more literal interpretation of a psalm. Not just a, not just a psalm that kind of gives a hat tip to maybe one line from a psalm, but one that really tries to import a good chunk, most of or even all of, one of the psalms. Now, just as a quick caveat before we get into Psalm 1, in case you're wondering, I do not believe in exclusive psalmody. In the history of Presbyterianism, there have been some who have seen such glory in the Psalter, and they thought it such a necessity that God's people know it and rejoice it and have it in their hearts, that they made it a law in their churches that congregations were only allowed to sing paraphrases of the Psalms and nothing else. So no hymnals. No praise choruses, not even songs based on other parts of the Bible. They said, this is God's songbook. This is what God's given us to sing. Good luck improving on that, so we're not going to try. Now, you have to admit, there's something admirable about that commitment. I've yet to see a psalm-singing church wander into heresy, I must admit. But at the same time, I'm not an exclusive psalmody guy. If you want to know the reason, it, just frankly, it's because any Mormon on the planet can sing all 150 psalms. 
but a Mormon cannot sing holy, holy, holy. Okay? I will put my conviction to you this way. Sort of a however. If we cease to sing the Psalms, if they disappear from our repertoire, if they cease to form our worship, I don't think any longer that we're worshiping as God intends us to, and we are starving ourselves of a banquet that He's put before us. It's why almost every service we sing at least one psalm. So with that, I want to begin. The psalms are for singing, and they are for preaching. So today I'm going to preach one to you, the first psalm, and over the next couple of weeks we might try to sing some other ones. In due course, over the next year, we'll learn to sing some psalms together. So, Psalm 1 begins with a blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We begin here with two people. Two pathways, if you like. Two people or two pathways. And uh, I'm going to talk to you about those two. And then I'm also going to talk to you about two pictures and then two promises. How do you like that? Two people, two pictures, and two promises. We'll begin with two people, or rather two kinds of people, two paths that people can take. The psalmist sings here about two groups. He then gives illustrations of those two groups. Those are the pictures. And then tells us where both groups end up. Those are the two promises. So these two people, or two groups of people, in verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Did I say one through three? I meant one through two. So here we have a summary of righteous living and unrighteous living. Now it's a summary. That means it doesn't say everything you might want it to say. But what it immediately tells you is that there are two ways to live life. One is after what God has said. And the other one is in opposition to what God has said. Now, we don't like that. We often want more options. We want a way that maybe isn't God's way. It's, it's my way, but it's not a way that's going to get me in trouble. So a way that's my way, but doesn't end in destruction. But the Scriptures are quite clear in here and in other places that we are a people who follow after God's way because we know it's either that way or a way of destruction. We must be a people that understand that while there are many ethical challenges in our world that maybe don't immediately have an easy answer, most matters of life actually can be distilled down to a right and a wrong choice, to sin and righteousness. In fact, the very first sin from our very first parents, which we talked about on Wednesday night, the very first sin in the garden began with the serpent lying about the clarity of God. Did God really say? Did He really say that? Are you sure? Are you sure it's eat or don't eat? What if it's eat with good intentions so that you can be wise and like God yourself? God didn't disclose that option, did He? Bit unreasonable of Him. Right? That was the temptation in Genesis 3. And the most common way that you and I get duped and played by the world, by our, by our flesh and by the devil, is not with, hey, here's, here's right, Here's wrong, now come do the wrong, won't you? That's usually not the way temptation comes. Because that's easy to say no to. Your enemy is a lot smarter than that. The way temptation usually comes is wrong? Are you sure? 
It's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? I mean, people don't really understand how you've suffered. So, I mean, it's kind of different for you. You're kind of the exception. You've worked really hard. People might not understand, but you are the exception here. You know, Lord, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. <laughs> As I drift back into music, don't let me be misunderstood. So that's, that's the way temptation comes. It comes usually in the form of, I mean, wrong is it though? I mean, aren't you kind of the, the, the exception? And how cool is it? Think about it this way. How cool is it that in the face of the most common way temptation comes in the world, which is to say, well, it's not really right or wrong, is it? I mean, it's not really just two ways to go. There's kind of a third way, and you are kind of the special exception that gets to walk in that third way. In the face of that temptation, the Lord has given a song for His people to hum and sing to themselves so they keep reality straight. That's kind of cool. So that they see the temptation coming a mile off. And so the psalmist begins to explain these two ways using contrast. If you look back at the the verse. He starts with what not to do. Blessed is the man who does not. Starts with the negative. Does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. That is, practice fellowship with people who reject God. In our context, people who reject Christ because... You will always imitate those you spend time with. That's not a possibility or a probability. It is a certainty. One of the dumbest ideas my generation came up with was missionary dating. Okay? Now, has God saved His, well, I'm going to say His tens in missionary dating. I was going to say like hundreds at first. I'm going to say God has saved His tens with that. It's a very rare thing. But praise God, He still does it. But on the face of it, it's really a ridiculous idea that you can convert or fix somebody by getting very deeply, intimately involved with them. It is usually led just to a lot of broken hearts. With some exceptions, perhaps. What else does this man do? He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers or mockers. There are times in the Bible when mockery and sarcasm are appropriate. When Elijah goes up against the prophets of Baal, it's an amazing story. He basically challenges them to cry out to their God and I'll cry out to Yahweh and we'll see what happens. And they can't get their false dead idol to do anything. And the prophet says, cry louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on the toilet. Wow. But there's a difference between that and someone who just mocks everything. If you don't know them, you've probably seen them on TV. People who see themselves as so high and mighty and cool that they make fun of everything just to remind you that they're above everything. And everything is beneath them. And when they mock stuff you don't like, man, you're ready to join them, right? Get them. But wait about 15 seconds and they'll remind you that they're a really miserable person because they just mock everything. But So we have this doesn't go in that way. Doesn't take the counsel of the wicked. Doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers or mockers. But, here's the contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Man, that is so cool. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So this blessed man, that word can be translated happy or content, if you like. The blessed man delights in God's law, meditates on it, thinks about it day and night. And that word for meditate, this is so cool, can actually be translated mumble or mutter. He's talking to himself. 
He's mumbling to himself all day about the goodness of God, about what God has said, about how good it is, right? So when, when you talk to yourself, what do you talk about? When you talk to yourself in your head or even out loud, what do you talk about? Do you talk about your anxiety, your lusts, your fears, your anger, your frustration, how, how unappreciated and pitiable you are? This man mumbles and mutters to himself God's words and God's ways and God's instruction and God's wisdom. He meditates on God's law day and night. And if you're tempted to say, sounds a bit like a legalist, Never forget that God giving us His law, His way, is in fact an amazing work of grace. God in giving us His law has graciously shown us the way of life so we don't go racing off into destruction. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute, Pastor Brian. Wait a minute. You've talked before about this distinction between law and grace. And with all love, no, I haven't. There's a distinction between law and gospel. That's what you're thinking of. The law is what God has said, okay? how God has called us to live. The gospel, what Jesus has done, given us a righteousness that is not our own. Hallelujah. But we don't make a distinction between law and grace. We make a distinction between law and gospel. Because the law is part of God's gracious gift to us. To tell you the ways that you are actually in life, going to go about blessing you and your household and your neighbor. Here's that way. Walk in it. Be a blessing. So let me put it to you this way. If a child is reaching out to touch a hot stove, okay, and, a, and, and mom or dad's hand comes in at the last second and grabs them and says, don't touch that, is that law? Yeah. Is that grace? Yes. It is grace that God calls out to us in His Word and says, do not destroy yourself. Do not walk in these ways that will destroy you. Is that law? Yes. Is that grace? Yes. Can the law be misused? Of course it can. Not only can it be misused, there seems to be some sort of like fallen, twisted go-to tendency in our flesh that always wants to take God's kindness and turn it into a ladder that we can climb to earn our salvation. It's just, I mean, it's just since the fall, that's just hardwired into us. So God says, you must believe to be saved. And we say, okay, I bet you I can put that into a system. (laughs) A box I can check and just be done with it, right? I'll walk an aisle, I'll pray a prayer, I'll sign a card and we'll be done here, right? Right? We'll be done here. Maybe memorize John 3.16 if I'm especially spiritual. Sing Jesus loves me and then I can move on. And we, we miss actually you know, loving the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. This glory that God has called us to. That we will, by the way, fail. It's why we do that whole confession of sin thing every Sunday. We know and acknowledge that we fail in it. We come running back to the cross and again God gives us a righteousness in Christ that is not yours. That's very liberating, by the way. It's freeing to know that the righteousness that I have before God, that it, to put it this way, if you were to walk into the throne room of God, He would say, oh, it's you, one of my perfect children. 
To which you want to say, like, I'm sorry, Lord Almighty, have you met me? Right? But He sees you through His Son, counting you righteous in Him. A righteousness that's been given to you as a gift. So, let me get this metaphor. We have two people. Okay? One walking in God's ways, one not. Then we have two pictures. Two pictures. Look at verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Notice that this man in verse 3, like a tree, did not plant himself. He is planted by streams of water. And this is what God does. He is kind to give a future to those who trust in Him. To uproot them from the darkness and wickedness of their present place and to replant them in a place where they can actually begin to flourish. We read this this man, this tree, to stick with the metaphor, yields his fruit in season. And all that he does, in all that he does, he prospers. Let's unpack that just a bit. Because when you hear the word prosper, sometimes we're, we're kind of... Our, our sensitivities go up because there's this thing called the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, so-called, that treats God as a vending machine. That if I play the system right and I do the right things and with the right behavior, God owes me the right stuff, be it material blessings, health, financial stability, whatever have you. No, that's a heresy. Your God is not a vending machine. Just try calling, I mean... A, a king of the realm of vending machines, see how that goes for you. There's another problematic view, though. So we can, we can actually kind of go too far with that. The, the, the problem on the other side is that, well, God's not a vending machine, and that means He doesn't care about any sort of uh, uh, material blessing or steadiness in this life. Everything is just spiritual blessing. So God's Word changes my soul, but it doesn't do anything for my life here. That's not the case either. So how do we handle this? First, it's, it's, it's less a question of whether God like, blesses your soul or your body, uh, blesses your, um, gives you spiritual blessings or gives you material blessings. Is it one or the other? It's more a question of priority. So, so what I want you to get is that spiritual prosperity is always more important to the Christian than, uh, than material, physical prosperity. Uh, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, it should be our, our next bit on the slide. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Yeah. So talking about those who had suffered uh, for the name, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you, the author writes, had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Okay? So what you see there, it's actually it's, it's a question of priority then. The, the spiritual inheritance that you've been given in Christ what we look forward to in the world to come is more valuable. Think of that, uh, uh, the man who sells the field to get the pearl and so on, Jesus' parable. You gratefully accepted people stealing from you because you know that what you've got in heaven is worth more than they could ever take. So it's not that God word has nothing, God's Word has nothing to say about prosperity in this life, but it is an or, there is an order or a priority. Your spiritual prosperity and health is always more important to the Lord and also to you, Christian, than your physical prosperity and health. 
But at the same time, look, as a general rule, God is often kind to us in this short life that we have on earth. And it's okay to have some expectations there. Now, not demands, right? There, there, we do not place any demands on God. That's the vending machine. But when you put your hand to hard work, God is often good to bless it. And when He does, you should rejoice in that. This is why you hear a lot of expectation of blessing in the Psalms. That is the orientation of God's people. That we do expect blessing, and, when, and if it doesn't come, if we enter into a time of famine, poverty, not having what we want, or sickness, or death, or whatever, we lift up our hands and we say, God has given and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But I want you to think about the metaphor here. The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water. So picture that in your head, especially little ones. Okay, Picture that in your head. He, wants, he gives you this image because he wants you to think about it. He wants you to picture it. A tree planted by streams of water. I don't know if you've ever noticed the trees on either side of the Red River when you're, when you're either going to Pineville or going to Alexandria. On either side of the Red River, they are really green, really healthy, really hardy. That's because they've got all the nutrients they need flowing right by them every day. The blessed man of Psalm 1 is the one well-nourished by the Word of God. Now wait just a second there, Pastor. How do you know it's the Word of God? Well, because he told me so. He d- his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's the water he's receiving every day. But also notice, again, the metaphor is that of a tree that's been planted and growing. It is astonishing how many growth metaphors in the Bible are are agricultural, farming, planting metaphors. Part of the reason, I think, is that gardening takes time. Trees take time. Crops take time. Even shepherding sheep takes time. God takes His time with us. He works in us and with us over the whole course of life. And I think... To, to channel Bob Benson for a moment, if you'll pardon me to, to, to leave preaching and go to meddling. I think it is harder for us than, than maybe any generation before ours because we are accustomed to having everything rather quickly. Microwaves give us our food quickly. Amazon gives us our stuff quickly. Spotify gives us our music quickly. Screens and the internet give us our information and our entertainment quickly. And I think we undervalue how much our technology, which is a blessing, okay? It's a blessing. But I often wonder how much our tech is training us in impatience as we demand that the world moves faster than God made it. There's a guy named Nicholas Carr. Uh, He's an author and a journalist. I don't believe he's a Christian, but he's got some good insight I wanted to share with you. In 2020, he published a book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. He basically makes the case that constantly using screens in the Internet for all our communication and education and information is actually, over the course of the years, changing, if you will, rewiring our brains and our expectations. He brings in research that really is kind of alarming that basically demonstrates that we're losing the ability for sustained reflection and contemplation because it takes too long. Our minds are adapting to a world 
where the screen in front of us has already slidden or scrolled to the next thing. No time to stop. No time to pause and reflect. Why would you need that? That, that life lived on our screen is actually over time, again, just over, over time, it's not overnight, but over time for many people is robbing them of their ability to reflect and to process. I want you to take a look at this quote that I've got from his book. He says, What the screen seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it, in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Interesting. Go back to verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. I'm going to offer this to you to think about, to chew on over the week if you can think that long. Could it be that the reason such meditation seems out of our reach is because we're being trained in a lifestyle where such meditation is simply not possible? God means to plant trees, so don't expect Him to serve burgers, right? I think that's what I'm trying to get at. God's in the business of planting trees and growing them over the whole course of life. And that is why I think sometimes... Actually, I'm going to move on. I think I've made the point. Verse 4. <laughs> the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So you have two images here, right? You have the tree uh, that is steady, that is planted by the streams, that is strong, that doesn't get pushed around, and you have the chaff that with a little breath of wind is gone. Tossed about. You see the difference between the two pictures. That's where, that's where you're meant to, to meditate. That's where you're meant to camp out, is the contrast given to you of these two pictures. And so the picture of one who is just tossed easily about, rather than rooted, is tossed about by different, I mean, different ideas, different ways of life, different paths. Again, the, the idea of two paths that the psalm is calling us to recognize. Uh, getting easily tossed about is the danger. And I think if we're honest, it's, it's, a, it's a flavor, it's a lifestyle that many of us are a little too familiar with. Our world easily tosses about, and I would offer that apart from, apart from the word and prayer, we become an easily tossed about people. So those are your two pictures. Then you have two promises in verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I ask for your indulgence. We're going to go a bit over my usual time today, but I am on my last point. So, talk of two ways, two directions for life. One won't stand. One, uh, excuse me, one began with a guy standing, but it didn't end with him standing. So, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. He might have been standing in the way of sinners at the start of the psalm. By the time we get to the end, verse 5, he will not stand in the judgment. As hard as he may have, may have worked to ignore God and distance himself from what God had said and store up all kinds of religious-sounding junk to make himself feel secure, on the last day, what's going to happen? It's going to get blown away by the wind. But there's a reason for that. 
Verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It will be gone. You see, believing that God doesn't see us is the root of most sin. Let me read it again. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. So connect that with what I just said. Believing that God doesn't see us is the root of most sin. If God knows everything, then that means everything comes under judgment on the last day. If God doesn't know everything, then you've got a shot at hiding some of it. But there is no hiding. Jesus is king and nothing escapes his view. This is why, this is why by the way, we, uh, uh, one of the, the priorities I've placed in my, in my preaching and one of the things I've tried to help us do in our worship services is confess our sins to each other because it actually brings us out of darkness and into the light where another brother or sister can say, really, that's how much of a sinner you are? <laughs> okay. I love you. Jesus forgives you. A lot of the shame that covers even a lot of church-going people today is because they're convinced that if people knew who they really were, they'd be unforgivable. And so God has given this, us this, I don't want to call it a mechanism. Forgive me, it's the best word I can grab right now. God has given us this, this mechanism-like thing to start confessing our sins to each other so we can actually get looked in the eye and go, well, so that's how terrible you are. I still love you, and, I, and Jesus forgives you, and so do I. Right? So you actually need that for shame to be banished out of your life. And so what are the two promises then? That the way of the wicked will perish and that God sees everything. The way of the wicked will perish and that God sees everything. So this is what, what actually becomes hard to believe in moments of temptation. That what I'm doing is setting myself up for death. And that God sees everything. That He, that he, he sees all that I do. This is why we, in, in our confession of sin, we often, we often specify it to, to thoughts, words, and deeds. Because those are the things that Jesus is aware of. So, what does this psalm put before you today? It puts before you a God who is calling out, as it were, to you and me, that we know Him and walk in the way of life and not in the way of death. Now I ask you, is that law? (laughs) Yeah. Is it grace? Yeah, it is. Come and walk in this way and know the riches that I have in store for you. Not saying it's going to be easy. It might rip you apart because it certainly did that to my son but it's going to be good. It's going to be blessed. You're going to find in there, under that covering, the reason for your existence itself. It puts before us a God who over the whole arc of salvation history is calling out to His people to know Him, to to grow, to recognize, by the way, our, our inability to be righteous. So that's part of righteousness is knowing your own inability to walk in righteousness. And God says, I know, come to the cross where you find out that your sins are forgiven. And you don't build yourself into a mighty tree. You are planted. And it starts by coming to the one who was crucified on a tree so that God Himself could replant you like a tree that you might actually be blessed in this life and the next. 
not just for your good, but for the blessing of your neighbors. Because that's how trees work, isn't it? What does it mean to be a prosperous tree? It means to be packed full of fruit, and it means to be packed full of leaves, right? Stick with the metaphor. So when trees prosper, what do they make? Fruit for eating and leaves for shade. When God prospers you, what does He give you? The means to take care of yourself, the food, and the means to comfort your neighbors, the shade. And to feed them as well, right? And so so prosperity in God's world, prosperity in God's economy, is when He says, here's what you need. Now go share it with your neighbors too. Right? That's what trees do. They produce food. They produce shade. So He gives you the means to do that. This is how God prospers trees. That's how He prospers you. And so the call goes out again to you this morning. Which, which way are you walking in? Are you pursuing the way of Christ? And discovering all that He's, he's, he's called you to, joyfully called you to. Or the way of wickedness that is destroying you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and know your Maker and Savior. And He will plant you that you might be able to stand in days of shaking and chaff. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Our Father, I ask that You would plant us and root us strongly in the Word of God, in the law and gospel of Jesus, in the good news of the free gift of salvation, in the good news of our only comfort in life and death, in the good news that no accusation can condemn us, no condemnation is ours to bear. Because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so help us, Lord, as we seek after you with joy for the sake of Jesus and even for the sake of our neighbor. We ask it in his name. Amen.